0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is science writer and journalist Marek Kahn. He's written about the Englishness of evolutionary theory in A Reason for Everything, about the birth of the British drug underground in *Dope Girls, and the return of racial science in the Race Gallery. Much of my work he has written is about the implications of scientific thinking for ideas about human nature and society, and in his latest book, Turned Out Nice... His focus is on how the British Isles will change as the world heats up, not just how the climate and the natural environment will alter, but also how society will adapt. Of course, as the title indicates, at one level, these islands stand to benefit as temperatures rise. Con writes, buffered by the Atlantic, the British Isles will start to resemble a northern Arcadia, and their climate will be an object of envy rather than derision. But the title is also deeply ironic. By 2100, southern Britain swelters, London is an urban heat island, and the lives of our descendants, some of whom are already alive, will be very different, much more regulated and confined, much more closely monitored, and a good deal more fearful, as the question of who should be allowed entry to this northern Arcadia becomes an ever more burning one. By 2100, Conn writes, life in Britain is something like life in a ship in the 1900s. A lot of people are closely packed together and have to share the same resources. The result is a regime of extensive and detailed regulations, together with a strong moralistic imperative of mutual respect and orderly community. We'll get on to those aspects of life later, but I began the interview by asking Marek why he wanted to look at a global problem in a national context.
1: I was set the challenge of looking at climate change on a a, a national scale or the the scale of the British Isles and when I started to think about it I I realised that it had potential for doing something for thinking about climate change in in ways that are actually rather difficult to do when one's thinking either about the world as a whole or about the places in the world that are going to be worst affected. It's not going to be the end of the world in in, in this country, in in these islands. And that actually opens up a bit of space to look at things that are going to be happening or likely to be happening at levels that we don't usually consider. It's This is not about putting a saucepan of water on on the gas and and, and working out what happens as, as, as it heats up. This is about thinking about our relationships, thinking about how, well, not really our relations, thinking about how our descendants may relate to each other, may relate to other parts of the world, how they may understand their relationship to their environment and 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 their sense of, of national identity or other forms of identity. Now, people in other parts of the world will also have their their relationships and, and perceptions of those kinds, their sense of themselves, changed by climate climate change. But uh, where the pressures of climate change are going to be absolutely overwhelming. They're just, uh, it's obviously much more important to, to think about the droughts, think about the floods. Here we have some different issues, and that's been very, very interesting to, to, to go into.
0: The title of the book, nonetheless, carries quite an ironic charge. Yeah, it Turned Out Nice is um, ironic in,
1: in, in, a, in a number of ways. Um, part of it is the way we use the phrase... We don't mean very much by it. It's one of those things. It's part of talking about the weather, and of course, all we're really saying when we talk about the weather is, is um, "Yeah, I kind of like you and Dana. Uh, uh, let's uh, let's get along, right. okay." The idea of, of turning out nice uh, relates to to the. Uh, the thing that people always say when you talk about climate change in Britain which is uh, something along the lines of chance would be a fine thing and yeah I mean I can I can understand that that and um, uh, as one packs one's bag for three seasons for a a two day excursion and uh, and uh, you don't know what you're going to be faced with uh, when you come home after you uh, when you go out well yeah sure the idea of pleasanter weather is superficially attractive but it's superficial and the image I have in mind is people saying to each other, yeah, it turned out nice, hasn't it? But actually, they're living in a world, not only a world that's much worse, but actually their own circumstances are much worse. And this is this is the, the absolutely crucial thing, is, is that however you try and reckon it up, if we proceed on, on the path that we're on at the moment, and our descendants proceed on that path, and gas emissions continue along the kind of track that they're going on at the moment, come the end of the century, we can expect a world that is very, very tense and fraught and conflicted. I mean, think how volatile the world's markets are these days. Think uh, how important confidence is to, to the economy and then think about a world in which Every week something shocking is happening in some part of the world a a harvest is failing there's a flood here a storm Storm there a heat wave somewhere else And and that's just the dramatic stuff People May be in their shirt sleeves, but they aren't going to be very relaxed if they're continually worrying about their jobs uh, Whether their pensions are worth anything anymore or indeed whether they can find anything in in the shops
0: All that being so But at the same time given our collective tendency to put our hands over our ears when the when the news gets too bad how did you calibrate the tone that you wanted to achieve in this book
1: what i wanted to do in this book was not preach to people or actually offer solutions but to write about climate change to think about climate change in a way which was different it seems to me to be very important to, to try and find new ways, more or less creative ways, of engaging with, with the problem. I think I was guided most of all by the data, really. Um, what I've tried to do is is say, OK, what might the world be like, what might the British Isles be like if we carry on the way we are and our descendants carry on the way that, that we've been carrying on? So that's two things. One is emitting carbon, um, uh, in, in, in the way that, that burning carbon in the way that, that, that we are at the moment for long enough to cause the damage and also taking the kinds of attitudes to each other towards the outside world and and uh, to society forward into the future without really re-evaluating them so this was about telling a a story and making suggestions this wasn't about creating a world I've done a series of cameos of the future but I've realized very early on when I started writing them that I really didn't want to make a model train set of the future. I didn't want to have a fully realized world. Um, What I wanted was lots and lots of suggestions that people could take in various ways um, that I hoped would actually be a little bit unsettling, but not without humor. The, the cover of the book has has been designed. Um, I was very pleased that they, that, it was, um, that without me prompting them, um, that they, they, the design people came up with a, a, an ironic and humorous one. My sense of humour does tend towards the somewhat dry, and um, well, it's it's a way of coping with the awareness of, of grave and ominous news, and I. I, I, I Think I, ho- I, I hope that some of that has come through into the book.
0: So an aspect of the book is really a thought experiment. It's taking the data, as you say, and extrapolating from it, but not limiting it to the, the results in the physical world, but also looking at how we relate to each other, how politics will change, how international relations will change. So looking at it in a much wider context than perhaps we generally do.
1: It seemed very obvious um, for, uh, after I'd thought about it for a very short like, period of time that the challenge of climate change for these islands is very, very different than it is for almost anywhere else in the world. It's quite remarkable how singular the the prospects for the future are for Britain and Ireland. And these prospects seem to me to be be, um, pivoted around a, a change in the relationship between Britain, the, the, the nations of Britain and Ireland and everywhere else, and actually also between the, the, the different regions and, and, and nations of of these islands themselves. The picture that, that that emerged as I started to think about this was, well, one in which we are buffered by the Atlantic. The key to this is is that we're in the shade of the Atlantic, that the the, the, the Atlantic Ocean swaddles our, our climate, and it's going to continue to do so. Whatever happens to the Atlantic Ocean currents, in, in fact, actually if they're, they're disturbed, it'll probably cool the place down even more and uh, accentuate the differences between us and, and the continent and uh, I found myself starting to think about, about how that would play out with the sorts of ideas about ourselves that that swirl around the, these islands at the moment and, and, and in particular the, the, the deep ambivalence in our relationship with elsewhere our views about diversity and who is us and who is them and, and how we manage the, the relationships between us and them and who becomes us and, and all the rest of it. Also, and this is something that, that I've I've gone on to think about more and more since completing the book, thinking about a society that doesn't really isn't really that keen on engaging with itself civically and politically, which which is at odds disgruntled, disaffected with democracy while fully committed to it formally. But doesn't really live it, and I'm thinking about a, a, a place that gets more and more crowded because of partly because of population growth, but but also because of the need for energy efficiency. Cities are efficient energetically, dense housing is efficient energetically, and presumably that's go- going to be an immensely powerful force in the future. And you know, the stuff that's not built on is going to be used for growing food, except for the bits around in the. The the uh, the high boggy peaty bits, which uh, which have got going to have problems of their own. So this is all about, this is all about exploring um, the need to revive ourselves civically and and and, and 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 politically.
0: You mentioned cities, and you devote quite a lengthy chapter in the book to, to London. Understandably a London which has characteristics in common with some continental cities you describe as being steeped in heat, which that was a very nice way of, of describing it. And as you say, people living much more energy efficiently and in much more um, compact surroundings. Um, you, take, you take the year 2100 as kind of a key point of comparison. What do you think that the salient distinctions will be between the London of now and the London of then?
1: It's going to be like it is, but much more so. This is how I'm seeing um, the British Isles as a whole. Obviously, that follows from the the, the basic uh, premise of the book, which is is is, is what happens if, if people carry on as we're doing at the moment. So um, I'm, I'm not trying to invent new things that haven't yet been foreseen. But uh, certainly, I mean, you, you one's already seeing this. There's already talk about about the need to to make uh, London much much more dense. London actually isn't a very dense city at the moment, particularly compared to. A number of comparable places, well, Barcelona. It's incredibly dense in the in the centre. Paris is dense, and people can live well in those those places. So it's not necessarily worse. One of the nice things about about, about this is, is that um, one does imagine a, a really uh, quite substantial and perhaps you could say profound greening of, of, of cities. The greening of cities in the past was creating open areas, parks and, and gardens, and so on. The greening in the future is is going to be integrating the green into buildings themselves, covering the, the walls and the uh, the roofs. And one can already see certain certain buildings, even with with green walls in, in in London already. And I'm imagining that this is going to become the norm. But I'm also imagining a city in which movement is is very very difficult. Movement throughout the country is going to be difficult. It's going to be problematic because, effectively, in my future, the question is asked about every journey is this journey really necessary? Like the old wartime slogan, except it won't just be a slogan to search your own conscience with. It's something that's, um, I, I invi- I, I've imagined, a transport system, system that is actually automated and, and controlled by, by computers. So you're no longer a driver, you're a passenger in your own car. And to to make a journey you actually have to bid for space on the roads uh, according to a finely computed point system based on how, how, how worthwhile and necessary your, your needs are. Uh, so I imagine a London which has, has become much more uh, of a network than a, a, a hub and spoke place. The Victorians built the underground system like the spokes of a wheels so it, it all goes into the centre. And I'm imagining, yeah, the underground's still there, the tube's still there, but it just gets there's just no way of cooling it down in summer, so it doesn't work as a local line anymore. And peripheral centres um, have become much more important. So instead of there being suburbs, it's going to be a different kind of uh, network city. And presumably that'll also be true of other other megacities in in the future.
0: You mentioned the civic aspect, and you posit some positive developments there. You imagine the end of a throwaway society and a greater sense of interpersonal responsibility and people working at their relationships rather than discarding them on the, on the credit side. And on the debit side, you imagine a world where surveillance is much more prevalent, where everybody's movements are being monitored and we're all having to be much more careful about our behavior because we now realize the implications of it. Can you expand a bit on, on, the, on that sort of interpersonal and civic side of your picture? I th- felt that I wanted to think about how
1: climate would affect not just political relationships or international ones or, or, or even um, local community ones, but relations between people, even intimate relationships. I thought, well, would they? And as I thought about it, I thought, yes, they would, actually, because... You know the climate is all around us, so it's, uh, and it does actually condition our our, our lives. And you know, there's a sort of stereotypic way of looking at it that uh, you know in southern Europe people have siestas and and um, and their relationships, are, uh, their working and their and their intimate relationships are sa- said to be uh, all organised around around the, uh, the the changes in the in, in the heat and, and so on. I thought there might might well be more to it than that. I, I suppose at some points I, I am, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm I'm describing changes that I actually think might be quite a good thing to have, but I've tried to be a bit circumspect about about this. I, I've in the the passage about personal morality, I've tried to indicate that that it's really come from a sense of insecurity. It's not so much that people have felt free to review the way they relate to each other. A lot more of it has come from them being frightened and um, perhaps falling back on traditional morality. And that's not my own particular approach to life, though. I I suppose if you you read the book and that is how you live your life, then then perhaps you you might see it as as an entirely welcome development. I I have more mixed feelings about this. But I I, I do think, I mean, I think for other reasons, actually, that that, that, um, we're living in a very strange moment where. Relationships have become very highly overstretched and unsustainable, and and it's uh, I personally find it a little bit curious that, that people have made this explicit when they're talking about stuff. You know, there there are now people, more and more people talking, um, quite influentially, well perhaps not influentially in terms of people doing anything, but in terms of people listening, about how having more stuff doesn't make us more happy. The idea that that we now need to look at happiness rather than absolute material standards of living is is becoming much more mainstream and solid in a way that, that that it never used to be because it's on based on many more data apart from anything else but people haven't started saying um, saying the same sorts of things about relationships well, I reckon they probably will and I reckon they will without without the climate changing but the likely effect of the climate seems to me to be pretty much the same across the board Wherever you've got a tension, wherever you've got a pressure, wherever you've got a trend, climate change intensifies that. So, for what we look at the uh, the more obvious headline one of of, of immigration, well, this country agonises over immigration; is deeply ambivalent over its attitude towards towards people coming in and uh, and their status within this country, and uh, it's not anti-immigration at such, it's deeply, deeply conflicted, and 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 it doesn't. Collectively speaking, it doesn't really quite know how to deal with it. That would seem to me to be the the, the story of, of, of this country for the foreseeable future, whatever happens to the climate. But as the climate changes, if the climate changes, then it is really going to, to add to those pressures, which makes it all the more necessary for us to say, OK, if we want to prepare for climate change, we start to think about the way
0: the way we relate
1: to each other, the, the way that uh, our society is formally organized and the way it works as, as, as a community and, and, a, and a democracy.
0: You speculate about the emergence of what you call a nostocracy. I don't know if that's a, a con coinage or or not, but can you tell me what you what you mean by by that, and what what you think its role might be in in the future?
1: Yeah, um, that, that's one of mine, and um, it's the first time I think it's ever been spoken. I didn't realise that the G was silent, but I suppose it is. <laughs> like the gaff that gaffs gaffs that people make when they've only ever read a word. Well, I actually invented this word, and I didn't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> but um, No, I. I, I um, Took an opportunity. Uh, I I wanted to to look at a particular spot in uh, in in the north of England, and I came into it thinking, in terms of of writing about a a habitat that's a bit well, very special and well known to ecologists and to people who happen to know the the dales. But actually, not really that, not really a household name. If it were to disappear, if these 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 um, upland hay meadows were to disappear. The world wouldn't uh, shift on its axis, but it would be a loss. But then I thought, actually, there's more going on here, and I and I, I wanted to I wanted to make a point about the difference between North Britain and 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 Southern England. I, I realised that for Scottish people, the, the term North Britain is is a, a probably rather irritating one. But um, what I wanted to capture was was the difference between. South of England, including the Midlands, and also also that would include um, southern Britain, I should say, including parts of South Wales, which under these under relatively high levels of of, uh, gas emissions is likely to become much more continental. The, The climate is really likely to shift. It's going to feel very really decisively different to how it is now. But the north is. More likely, although it's certainly going to get warmer, and it's going to be its climate is going to be affected. Climates are going to be affected. I suspect that what will be remarkable about those parts of the British Isles, also parts of Ireland, is the extent to which they have stayed the same, or to the rest of the world seem to have stayed the same. They'll still be basically cool and green and damp. And the hotter the re- and drier the rest of the place gets, the cooler and greener and damper they will seem to be, and. It it struck me that this could really affect how people in those places, of those places, see them how the rest of the world sees them something really special, somewhere that on the few places left on the planet that's still in touch with its heritage I'm hazarding a a, a little fantasy that uh, that would affect the way that local identities and national identities would work out, and also how desirable these places are, that um, the world's elites, instead of choosing a kind of Californian or Mediterranean climate as the ideal, would go, "Hey, north of England—that is, that's that's cool in the physical sense. That you know, we can think there. It's going to be calm. It's an equable, equable climate. Nothing much goes wrong there. It's quite secluded because transport will be so difficult. We'll get into that valley, and nobody will be able to come and bother us." And I invent this—I've uh, imagined this this campus um, where. Nostocrats, elite professionals choose to come and live from around the world and um, the idea of these these people is is that An increasingly weightless economy which it'll have to be for energy efficiency reasons as well as technological progress Will make it possible for uh, the, the the high status professionals of the world the, the elites of the world to live exactly where they choose and and uh, Interact with their, their clients if they have clients. Very often the governments of the world. Sometimes perhaps they'll be be top lawyers through electronic means without any loss of quality, without any loss of information. I, I, a bit that didn't quite make it to the final edit was that was that the only uh, the only uh, elite professionals that couldn't do that were doctors, and they uh, and, and they were the ones that stayed living in London in Georgian houses. But uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't fit everything in. <laughs>
0: You describe, at one point, measures taken to attenuate climate change as belated and ineffectual. And it seemed to me that was what you took the status quo, really, to be, as far as our present state of activity goes. I wondered, in conclusion, Marek, what changes in your own sort of attitudes came about as a result of spending a couple of years thinking about that comparative lack of Attention compared to failure to take action. Did you end the book in a more sober, pessimistic frame of mind than you began it? I think that the more I thought about
1: climate change um, and the more detail in which I thought about it, my mood, I don't think, became any less pessimistic, but it was less emotional. I think probably what happened was that I came into it thinking, yeah. It's not going to happen, nobody's going to turn around until they, uh, until it's too late. You have to feel the climate around you, you, know, you have to feel extremes of weird weather uh, in order to feel that it really matters. You know, you have it's very difficult to think about it happening in the future, it has to be happening right now. And that all obviously applies at the uh, at all levels of, of power uh, to, uh, up into, to, to the international levels. There's always short-term interests. That there's always cogent arguments for putting first. But having thought about the possibilities, I I, I think my pessimism of the pessimism of, of the spirit is, is 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 alleviated to some extent because. Um, Although objectively my pe- pessimism of, of the intellect is, is just as bad as it started, <laughs> I can also see lots of lots of ways of, of, of getting to work to, to deal with this. And um, in particular, um, I, I feel very pleased to, to have got hold of what I what I actually think is the problem. It's not it's not focusing on the technology. It's not 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 on, it's not um, above it's uh, uh, the need to. Um, to change the light bulbs and to force air travel at the domestic level and the need to make these huge strategic world historical changes in our sources of energy at the the global level. It's not just that, it's actually about starting to think about how we work as as societies and communities and and as nations and to work very vigorously on not just reinventing, but uh, I- enriching and, and innovating in, 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 in all those areas. And of course, um, the great thing about this, uh, this, uh, this strategy is, is that um, well, I'd like to think that you can make quick um, cause with common cause with skeptics and climate change and others because you know you do these things, you get a be- better society, whether or not the climate changes.
0: Marek Conn. Turned out nice, is that now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast but there are lots more author interviews and features on the Faber website, which you'll find at faber.co.uk. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Faber podcast, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.